today is Palm Sunday, and maybe you've wondered, like, why do they call it Palm Sunday? What was so, what was so special about that? Uh, you just kind of read that. Kirk did that for us just a minute ago. But I want us to look at it again from John chapter 12. If you have your Bibles there, we're going to start with a passage of Scripture that we're not actually using, but I think it's, it's important for us to, to understand why it's called Palm Sunday in the context of what's going on as we look at this. In John chapter 12, we read in verse 12 uh, th- this recounting of this story that John writes. Now, John's an Im- important person to us because not only did he write the Gospel of John and then 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, but then he's got the, the book of Revelation to us. So a lot of the New Testament written by him. And he's often referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. You know, he refers to himself as that, which I guess that means he was pretty sure of it. You know, I mean, that's an important thing for us to see. But I want to read this for us in verse 12. The next day, when the large crowd had come to the festival, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. And they kept shouting, Hosanna, God save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And his disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and they had been, that these things had been done to him. Meanwhile, the crowd which had been with him when he called Lazarus out from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify. And this is why the crowd met him because they had heard that he had done this sign. So what's happened is, if you remember this story about Jesus uh, and, and, and his friend Lazarus, it kind of kicked off something that was pretty important. Uh, this is the beginning of Jesus last week on earth before he is crucified. And John devotes a lot of his gospel to that. If you notice, we're only in chapter 12 and he's gonna run on for a few chapters describing the events of that week. And, and what's going on is that these folks are shouting Hosanna. They're, they're thinking about that in joyful expectation. And they're looking and hoping for something that is different for us because they're looking for the Messiah to come. And this is kind of funny. Do you remember that in all of Jesus's ministry, whenever he would heal someone or something amazing would happen, you remember what he would say? Don't tell anybody about this. And nobody ever listened. They told everybody, right? I mean, they, 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 you know, I was healed. I, I, I was a leper and Jesus cleansed me. I, I had this issue and Jesus did this. But this was the first time that Jesus allowed people to come and coronate him as king of their hearts, really. They, they tried several times. If you remember after the feeding of the 5,000, they were trying to do that. They, they, they wanted to do that and, and, and they were looking to make him a king. He, he'd kind of gone away. Uh, you remember oftentimes too that where Jesus was at depended on how people received him. He's in a place called Bethany right here. And Bethany was like a hometown hotspot for him where he was very, very comfortable. In his hometown, he was without honor. Do you remember that saying, a prophet is, is not without honor except in his hometown? You know, it's like, you're the little kid that grew up here. You're the carpenter's son. We don't really care about you. In Jerusalem, he was hated because that's where the seat of religious power was. And several times they had tried to stone him or, or take him up and, and they were doing these things, you know, but Bethany's different. And so when he leaves Bethany, these people begin to cut the palm branches and lay them down, showing a sign of royalty, taking their coats off, laying them down, and they're crying out. And and you know what, we're still crying out. We're still crying out. It's not that we're crying out to be saved. We know that we've been saved, but we know the ultimate salvation is yet to come because while God has saved us and given us the deposit of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we know that he will come again, amen? And we're looking forward to that. 
I think that's what makes this week so interesting to me. It was a preparation week for Jesus. It was a preparation week for the Jews as they were preparing for Passover. It's a preparation week for us, really. When I think about this week, I always think about Easter's coming and that means that we're gonna get ready for Good Friday. It means we're gonna be ready for Easter. Easter's like the Super Bowl of the Christian life, isn't it? It's the, it's the great time when we gather together and do that. And, and maybe like me, you'll grab some friends and family and you'll have a, a little Easter lunch. And I've enjoyed listening to my family talk about what's going to be made and we're gonna get this ham, we're gonna have this, and we're gonna do that. And maybe you're thinking about you know, getting ready for the Easter egg hunts. That means it's time to get the weed trimmer out again for the first time. You know, it, it feels like that's a little overdue at my house, honestly. And I think that's part of the curse. God said that he was going to curse the earth and it'd be hard and mowing the grass is part of the curse. It just is. But at your house, you're making preparations, but we need to prepare for Jesus to be in our hearts. They were preparing for the Passover. The Passover was really important for them because it signified and commemorated the time when God had called them out of slavery and they had exited. If you read the book of Exodus, they exited from Egypt. And do you remember what had happened? They'd take an unblemished lamb, they would sacrifice it and place the blood over the doorway and they were told the death angel would pass over them. Passing over. But this was going to be different, wasn't it? Jesus was preparing for his own death. I want to read the first seven verses of this chapter, and we're going to see that someone understood this, or maybe some people understood this, maybe even before the disciples did. Let's look at the first seven verses. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, the one who had raised him, he had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, and Martha was serving him, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, and anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Then one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of whatever was put in. Jesus answered, leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you don't always have me. This area of Bethany was about two miles away from where Jerusalem was. And Jesus hung out there often. In fact, there are a couple of different times that we know he visited there. He was very comfortable there and he was very comfortable with this family, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. You may remember a story where Jesus came and was hanging out in their house. They're not in their house in this one, as the other gospels tell us, but they were in Mary and Martha and Lazarus's house at this one time. And uh, Martha kind of got a little frantic as she was serving Jesus and Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus. And she kind of told Jesus, tell my sister to do this for me. And Jesus said, you're missing it. She's chosen the better thing. You remember that he came there and he raised Lazarus from the dead. And now some of the other gospels remind us that he's in a place uh, where he's in the home, where he's comfortable, but the home is not of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. It's of Simon the leper. Now there are two anointings that happen in the scriptures. One is at the house of Simon the Pharisee and one is Simon the leper. We don't think those are the same people. And, I, and I'll tell you why, because Simon the Pharisee has a lot of questions about what's taking place. He's very skeptical about this, but it's actually Simon the leper who this happens in the house. And Simon would have been a name like Dave or John. I mean, it, it 
it was not all that uncommon. So for us to read that is not uncommon. But as they're in this, having this meal, it says they were doing something for Jesus. They were holding a meal in his honor. And Lazarus, it says, was reclined at the table. And I just wonder, because John 11 is when Lazarus is raised from the dead, you kind of just wonder if Lazarus is telling the story. There I was, dark, dead, in heaven, hanging out with God the Father, and all of a sudden, the God the Father said, you gotta go back. Jesus is calling for you. There I was, I walked out, and you remember I was in those grave clothes, and Jesus said, unbind him and let him loose. What a day. He was hanging out there, he was doing that. And Jesus was certainly familiar with his family, he was close to them. And I want you to see two things that happened in this instance that we probably don't see coupled together in any other part of the scripture that I think will help us get ready for Easter. The first is that when we see Martha in this one, we see her serving. I don't know if you have a Martha in your life. Oftentimes people will say about somebody, if, if they're servant of the Lord, she's got the spirit of a Martha. She's a doer. She likes to get things done. She likes to serve. I, I have a Martha in my life. She's my aunt. She's literally named Martha. And uh, she's, she's just special to us. In fact, uh, I asked our kids about spring break. I said, well, we could go here, here, or we could go to Mississippi. And they chose Mississippi. Now, I don't know about you, but not many people choose to vacation in Mississippi. Just saying. You know, have you been there lately? You know, it's kind of swampy, uh, kind of flat. But they said, we want to go there. Why do they want to go there? Because we were going to see my aunt, my aunt Martha. And she dotes all over us and she serves us and she makes the kind of food that I like and all those kinds of things. It's great. Martha at one time had been serving in her own house and had gotten very frustrated with the fact that her sister Mary was sitting at Jesus's feet and said to him, Lord, would you please tell my sister to get up and come serve me. She doesn't say that here. Martha's in the house of Simon the leper who Jesus has healed. And this time she's not being scolded by Jesus because her attitude is right because she understands something that we all need to understand. And that's that we have to serve the Lord with gladness. You serve the Lord with gladness. It means that you're serving the Lord in the right way. It means you're doing it in a worthy way. And when we serve the Lord, we do it by keeping our eyes on him. A lot of times, what starts to frustrate us, I think is what frustrated Martha the first time. She was looking at her sister who seemed to just be having a grand old time hanging out at Jesus' feet and thought, somebody needs to get up in here and help me with the dishes. You ever felt that way at home maybe or something like that? Understandable. You know, when we take our eyes off Jesus, bad things happen. Peter took his eyes off of Jesus when he was walking on the water. And you remember it said when he looked at the wind and the waves and kind of got frightful, what did he start doing? He was sinking, right? But when his eyes were on Jesus, everything else paled in comparison. When our eyes are on Jesus, it changes the nature of our service because we begin to realize that he alone is worthy of all of these things that we might do. And if I look over here at what someone else is or isn't doing, I can get really, really frustrated. People often say, and I don't think this is true, but they often say 10% of the church does 90% of the work. That's not true here at Judson. We have way more than 10% of the people involved in the ministry and the work of the church, and it's important for us to do. But you know, maybe you get a little tired of that. You, you start to feel like, well, I'm doing all this work. and nobody's, Our service is to the Lord and we serve him with gladness by keeping our eyes on Jesus. A number of years ago, I was 
uh, in an internship in Daytona Beach, Florida with a man named Bobby Welch, who was the longtime pastor of First Baptist Daytona. He had gotten his start here in Nashville at a church that many of you might still remember is the Park Avenue Baptist Church over kind of on Charlotte and West End over there. And they had a great preacher there named Bob Mowry. He's gone home to be with the Lord now. But Bob blessed this community greatly with faithful service. And Bobby was one of his first associates. And on this particular Saturday, we were sweating. I mean, it was Daytona Beach in the middle of the summer and it was hot and it was miserable. And we were doing bus ministry. Now, how many of you are old enough to remember bus ministry? Anybody remember? If you're not familiar with this, it's it's this crazy thing that happened in the 60s and 70s that God really, really used. In fact, Elmer Towns, who's written on the great things that God has used seasonally through the years, talked about how bus ministries changed the trajectory of a nation, really. Churches would buy these fleets of buses and on Saturday or Sunday morning, send them out with bus, any, was any, I'm just gonna take a risk. Was anyone in here ever a bus captain? Anybody, can I, nope, okay. Should have asked in the first service, maybe. You know what I mean? Kind of one of those things. But they'd have bus captains and bus drivers and you'd have a route and you'd go pick up these kids and you'd bring them in and, and you'd do these services. And we were doing that still at Daytona on these Saturdays. And, and I kind of said to Bobby, like, we are dying out here. And he said, you know, it reminds me. When I lived in Nashville, Tennessee, not far from where you lived, I grew up in Hendersonville there, went to high school there for a season. He said, I was working one Sunday afternoon. One of our buses had died. And I'm talking about it was the middle of the summer and I was miserable. And I had a brand new pair of shoes on. And in the process of working on that bus, I ripped the leather on my brand new pair of shoes. And he said, I was sitting out there sweating. I was hot. I was mad. Nobody was with me. Pastor was probably at home taking a nap. And all of a sudden the Lord said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm fixing this bus that's broken down. Well, who are you doing it for? What, Lord? Who are you doing it for? Because I thought you were doing it for me. And if you're doing it for me, it doesn't matter if anybody's here or not or anybody notices Because when you're doing it for me, you keep your eyes on me. Service to the Lord done in that way is important. And what better way for us to prepare for Easter than to understand why we serve and who we serve? When we think about this, it's really summed up for us in Colossians chapter three in verse 23, when it says, whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. Who do we serve? We serve Christ, not serving other people. We're serving Jesus. And I think about that because a lot of times we get lost in the mundane and we forget about that. A number of years ago, one of our members, Holly Rudge, gave me this book called Every Moment Holy. It's it's a book of liturgies. And if you've never seen it, it's pretty cool. And as I was opening it, I noticed that it had a liturgy for changing diapers. Now, I gotta be honest with you. I haven't changed a diaper in a while. Uh, We've been kind of past that. But I've never thought about that moment being holy. I've thought about it being a lot of things. But never holy. But could it be that in the mundane things that we're doing, doing those things as unto the Lord changes mowing the grass. It changes uh, cutting your kid's hair or or, or sweeping up or or serving around here the food that we have to eat or preparing or setting up or, or working on music or preaching or teaching a Sunday school or maybe even rocking a baby so that a parent could come. Could that be holy? 
I think it can. And I think it should be. Because we're doing it for the Lord. All of these things, we're doing it to the Lord. If you're in business, have you thought about that you're serving as unto the Lord? That maybe your responsibility is to come and shape the lives of future business leaders to disciple them in that. Are you mentoring a mom who's younger than you? Are you mentoring a teenager who's trying to figure it out? I mean, those things are holy moments for us. And oftentimes we lose sight of that because I've got to do this or I have to go do this. Nobody else will do That's a terrible attitude. I'm doing it because we're serving an audience of one. Martha understood that this time. And she didn't ask Jesus to make Mary get up. She got busy serving the Lord. But Mary... She was doing something interesting. The scripture says in verse three that she took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, and anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair so the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It's interesting that this is happening because the sacrifice that was coming up would have been on everyone's mind. They were all getting ready for it. You had to procure an unblemished lamb. When you offer things to God, God doesn't take second best. So it had to be an unblemished lamb. And the scripture had very specific requirements for that. If you couldn't take care of eating that unblemished lamb with just your family, you'd go in with another family. I mean, there there were some responsibilities that you had to do. And certainly around Jerusalem in that area in the countryside, Lambs were being brought in. It would have been a a noisy time. It would have been a time of people coming together. And they're all thinking about the sacrifice. The Jews thinking about this unblemished lamb. But we understand that Jesus was about to be the sacrifice. John records for us that Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, at the beginning of this book, when he saw Jesus, do you remember what he said? He said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He will be the sacrifice. He will be the unblemished sacrifice, not a sacrifice to just atone for our sins and cover over them, but one that will actually cleanse us and make us whiter than snow. It would have been a time of gratefulness. I think Mary is probably offering this offering and sacrifice to the Lord because of how grateful she is. Remember, it's just in the last chapter that her brother had been brought back. That had been an emotionally wrenching time. They'd called for Jesus. They'd said, hey, the one you love, Lazarus, he's sick. We need you to come. And Jesus didn't. The scripture said Jesus tarried. He waited. And then when he came, Lazarus was dead. And Martha came and met Jesus and said, if you had been here, my brother would be alive. And then they, they, they sent for Mary. Martha went and found her and spoke to her privately and said, the teacher's here. He wants to see you. And Mary comes and falls at the feet of Jesus and says, if you had been here, my brother would be alive. And Jesus raised him from the dead. And in this moment, it's a grateful offering of a woman whose life has been transformed by an encounter with Christ. But it was also not just an offering of gratitude, but it it was prophetic. Matthew and Mark tell us Jesus looked at the audience and said, guys, you don't even understand what's happening here. This lady has reserved this in advance of my burial. There were a lot of things that were going on the disciples didn't get. I think we thought that they understood everything. But we just read this for you in John chapter 12. Do you remember this? In verse 16, it said his disciples didn't understand these things at first. They saw all these people cutting palm branches and laying their coats down and they thought, 
this is strange. What is going on? And it didn't click for them till later when they started piecing the events together and they remembered the Old Testament had said these things. Your king is coming. He's sitting on the donkey, the colt. They began to see it and, and they began to, to piece these things together. But Mary saw something that was special. She, she saw it in advance, perhaps. We might all wonder, how did she know these things? How could it be that, that, that she was able to see this and the disciples didn't? If you read anything about Mary's life, every commentator will point out she did one thing and did it well. Every time you read about her in the scripture, do you know where she's at? The feet of Jesus. It says it when her sister's angry at her, she's sitting there listening to Jesus at his feet. It said it in John chapter 11, she fell at his feet. It says it in John chapter 12, she was hanging out at Jesus's feet. She's sitting there, she, she's waiting. Why, why would she know this? It's because she'd been there. She was with the master. She sat at his feet. She, she had a, a listening posture, a learning posture all the time. And I think for many of us, we miss so many things because we're never at Jesus's feet. And you say, well, how could I be at Jesus's feet? You can take the posture of learning and open up this word and begin to read it and begin to ask God to speak to you through it. Ask the Holy Spirit as you pray to reveal things to you and, and adopt the posture of learning that's there. So it's, it's a, a sacrifice of gratitude. It's a prophetic sacrifice, but it was a costly sacrifice. Did you notice what Judas said? Hey, this could be 300 days wages. That's what a denarius was, a day's wage. So almost a year for the average worker and she'd saved this back. And you can imagine coming and doing this. As they say that it was for Jesus' burial for preparation of that, they did not have embalming techniques like we have today. And if you remember on the day that Jesus was raised, the ladies were coming back to do what? They were coming back to tend to the body because it, it was decaying. And so they were masking the odor with that. Those spices and perfumes and things like that, they would put them in the tomb and they would place these things around the body. And here, all of a sudden, it begins to fill the house. A lot of senses came alive that night, don't you think? Eating. I bet I could mention something from your growing up days that you would remember and it would take you back to a meal you had or a special thing someone used to make for you or that you would go and, and buy. Some of you, it wouldn't be that it would be the smell, it would be the neon light that says hot donuts now. Takes you right back. But mix that with the fragrant perfume filling the house. And it's a strange thing because it's a perfume that might have been associated with death. Smelled good, but it might have been like, well, this feels out of context, but it wasn't. It was a costly sacrifice. We'll never sacrifice anything to the Lord that doesn't cost us something. There's no way you can give something to the Lord that's free or cheap. It always costs us when we sacrifice to the Lord. And we talk about this often here as we talk about one of our values that's so important for us. You must be a generous people to be here. You have to be. We talk about this all the time. Generosity, God's generosity towards us guides us to be generous in every way. And we talk about it in several ways. We talk about it in times. 
right? Time is maybe the most precious commodity that you have because you're given it a limited amount of it. It's finite. You don't know how much you have from the time that you're born. The clock is ticking and you're burning time off, right? It's just running away from us. And we know that the seasons of our lives are short. The time that we have with people is short. So to sacrifice our time and say, I'm going to give this to you. I'm going to invest in you. I'm going to, to, to make an investment in your life or investment in this ministry is massive. We recognize that. We also talk about sacrificing your abilities. What abilities do I have that I could give to the Lord? I guarantee you have more than you think you do. You have more abilities that God could use for his kingdom if you would sacrifice them for his kingdom service. God can use those things for his glory in people's lives. Always we talk about finances. There's never a gift that you give that's a true sacrifice that isn't costly. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a sacrifice. David Nelms is one of our mission partners. And when he comes here, he represents the Timothy Initiative. They plant churches all over the world. We've been a part now of planting over 100,000 churches with the Timothy Initiative. It's crazy how fast God is moving through North Africa and India and doing all that. And we just, we praise him for that. David tells a story often now about being at Judson Baptist Church in this room on a Wednesday night. Small crowd, you know, 30, 40 people because we've got Bible studies going on and youth going on, children's ministry going on. And he was telling this story about a missionary who was in Africa observing local churches raising money for missions. And he said they took the offering and the pastor got up and said, this is not enough for us to send our missionaries. We're going to have to take another offering. Passed the plate again. And the pastor came up and said, this is not enough. We're going to have to do it again. And at that point, people began bringing their shoes and laying them at the altar, taking off their outer garments and laying them at the altar. And the missionary reported to David that a great cry broke out and people began to wail in that room and the missionary said, what's going on? And he said, it's not enough and we've given all we have. That night, there was a little girl sitting in the back back here and uh, she was new to our church because she had just entered a foster family in our church. She's now part of their family. But that little girl had been to the store on the way to church with mom that night. And she'd gotten a brand new pair of shoes. And she said, can, can we give the missionary my shoes so that God's work can be done? She brought that little pair of shoes up and gave it to David. And David was still pastoring a church in Florida at the time. And he went back that next Sunday and he held up those shoes and said, who's gonna buy these shoes? And of course it was filled with cash overflowing as they sent more missionaries out to do that. You ever sacrificed a new pair of shoes? You ever said no to something you wanted so that you could say yes to something God wanted? Listen, I hope that you take vacations. I hope you get a new car. I hope that you, you get to do things you want to do because I want to do those things too. Those are fine. But a sacrifice is costly. Oftentimes it kind of 
hurts for a minute. Ooh. I don't know that I want to say no to that so I can say yes to this. I'm not sure, Lord, but Mary had made that. She was at Jesus' feet. She's hanging out. She's in the learning posture. She's got a prophetic sacrifice. She's got a, a grateful sacrifice. She's got a costly sacrifice. And so it kind of leads us to this question of well, what does that mean for us? How can we serve the Lord and how can we sacrifice for him? What, what would that look like for us? Would you turn right in your Bibles just a few pages to the book of Romans chapter 12? The apostle Paul's writing a church that he's hoping to get to see. He never made it. He, he's, he's, not, he's not gonna get to hang out with them because he's, he's in, in chains. And he's writing saying, I'm hoping that I'm gonna get to come and it's gonna be great. But he never came as a free man. He wasn't able to do that. And as he writes this group of believers, he speaks to them about their lives. And he says in verse one of chapter 12, the book of Romans, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, in other words, understanding all God has done, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship, or maybe your translation says your reasonable act of worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. When Paul addresses these believers as he talks to them, he says some important things. He says that you need to give yourself to the Lord. What a sacrifice for us to give ourselves to the Lord. And, and it's probably time for us to consider that question again as a church and as individuals. In the old days, we would have called that rededicating your life to the Lord or recommitting your life to the Lord. Where you come back and you say, I am yours, you are mine, you have all of me. I want you to have it. I lay it down again. And that happens for us over and over and over again. You remember that Joshua when he's talking to the nation of Israel, says, choose for you this, this day, who are you gonna serve? And that idea of choosing, it wasn't a once and for all. The word he uses, keep choosing. Choose every day. Make the decision to serve the Lord. And when Paul says, we need to do this, he says, give yourself to the Lord. Let yourself just be totally given over to the Lord. Sacrifice those things. It's not about me anymore, Lord. It's what you want. It's what you want for my life. And as he says this, he says, this pleases God. When we give ourselves fully to the Lord, it's a pleasing thing to God. You wanna make God happy? Give yourself to him. Let him have all of you. Don't hold anything back. Let him have it. Then he says that it's a holy thing for us to do. The Bible's telling us here that God wants us to be a holy people set apart, that we're crucifying the flesh, meaning that we're, we're not giving in to what the flesh is telling us to do, but we're saying no to that and yes to God. Then he says, this is reasonable or, or your true act of worship. Well, why would it be reasonable for us to do that? Why would it be a true sign of devotion? What's well, in light of what God has already done for us. Jesus died for us. So why wouldn't we die to self so that we could live for him? What it is, is us laying down our lives so that we may pick up his. That's the great exchange that happens, isn't it? It's a costly sacrifice. You've got to say no to yourself and lay your life down so that you may pick up Christ in faith. And the Bible says that we do that when we admit that we're a sinner, when we confess our sin, that we've offended a holy God, that we're under God's wrath. When we admit that, that's the first step. The second step, we ask God to forgive us of those things and to cleanse us. The Bible says that if we'll confess Jesus as Lord 
and believe God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. That's the exchange. You're the Lord, I am not. I take your life and I appropriate it over mine. And the Bible says that if we do that in faith, we'll be saved. So it's, it's because of the work that Jesus did that makes us look at him and say, this is reasonable. This is our true act of worship, that we should come before the Lord and sacrifice our lives for his cause, his purpose. So it's Easter. How are you gonna prepare this week for that? Jesus was preparing to give his life for you. Mary was preparing him for what was about to come in burial. We need to prepare our hearts. We need to prepare our hearts to be ready to serve him with gladness, to be ready to sacrifice, to be ready to push forward with what he has called us to do. So I'm gonna ask you if you would just enter into a time of prayer and reflection right now. Is there any part of your life that just needs to be laid down in the service of the king? That you would just say, Lord, this is yours. Maybe it's time to Recommit your life to the Lord. Rededicate your life to the Lord. Perhaps it's time to adopt the learning posture again and find yourself at the feet of Jesus. Whatever it is, would you respond as God leads? Father, we come to this time and Lord, some of us just need to find ourselves at your feet this week. For some, it's to say again, I am yours and you are mine. Father, maybe for some in the room, it's the first cry of a heart that has recognized its need for you and Lord, would you meet that need in Christ Jesus? We pray for people to be saved. We pray for you to set our hearts afire, afresh and anew again, Lord. Lord, as we prepare for Resurrection Sunday, that it wouldn't just be a good week. It wouldn't just be a good Sunday, Lord, but that you would move in our midst. Lord, you are worthy. You've paid for our sins on the cross. Christ, we lift you up as the name above all names. And Holy Spirit, we ask now that you have your way. Father, send the Holy Spirit to us. Holy Spirit, have freedom. Call us to the Father again. Change our hearts. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.